I thought a fun place to start might be talking about how you prepare for a performance. I was thinking about the irony of interviewing my dance teacher, who is an expert performer, and um, the tables are kind of turned because you might feel like I do when I perform, where I feel like I have this plastered smile on my face and I'm trying to relax into the performance. So tell me a little bit about how you prepare for a performance and then apply that. <laughs> well, it's hard to apply because I practice a lot. Practice, practice, practice. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, think that once I arrive at the performance, I've um, worked on my material enough that despite the nerve, something approaching what I had intended will come out. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, that's the whole idea behind martial arts training. You train, 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 train for the event that may or may never happen where you're in a situation where you just have to draw it up from your body to do the thing that you've been training for. Although performance is more, you know, like you know the date it's going to happen and you know the time and then you watch the audience assemble and then like how do you deal with just the fluttery nerves or is it just a matter of like starting and then you're okay? Um, I try to notice when I feel the nerve, nervous feeling and then I try to breathe into it and um, see if I can relax a little bit into that feeling and tell myself it's excitement and that I'm doing something interesting and important. And um, sometimes I take those flower essences. What is it? Rescue remedy? Like a essential oils kind of thing? Kind of like, yeah, it's kind of um, the flower essences that are um, a stre natural stress relief thing. May or may not work or placebo effect, but Kind of fun to try. Mm -hmm. I should have taken some of that before this interview. That's good. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> Next time. You know, and I, I, I just find the the parallels really interesting about performance because that's also what we're talking about today is performance. Yeah. Right. While we are doing a kind of performance that's new for both of us, um, I am no expert at this, but I find that I'm in my fifties and I just have things to say now and like. I know that not everybody wants to hear it, but that shouldn't prevent me from saying it. Yeah. And, and yeah, sharing messages that I think are important. Yeah, I love I love that, and I love what you do, and all the different um, platforms that you're exploring to share your message is really cool. I get nervous. Um, just it surprises me, you know. I think we had an emerging artist showcase in the fall, or I can't remember when. Um, and so I wasn't performing at all in the show, which was really exciting for me. Um, students were playing palmas and singing and playing were you guitar. Not even, you were not even playing guitar? I did not play oh, guitar. Yeah. So my entire role was emceeing. Um, and I was super nervous. Huh. <laughs> so nervous for it. Um, and I, you know, had my little note cards and I practiced um, the like what I was going to say a bunch. and. I think it's just practice, you know, I'm just, I'm I never, you know, I did want to be a guitarist and I did want to dance and I never wanted to be the person doing the talking at the show, introducing things. So now sometimes after a show, you know, there's been a few shows where I've just emceed. And I think the biggest one was when we had Antonia Jimenez in town and 
uh, before the before we started that show, I was in a dark room by myself with my head against the corner <laughs> with the mean, lights off. <laughs> you mean the one the one that was in that old church? Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? I was yeah, I was there. What I was trying to say, like in advance in this dark room, I think it was like it was at a church, so it was yeah. like the like kindergarten room or something and like somebody who worked at the church came in and they saw me there with my head up against the corner <laughs> they're like oh excuse me and I'm like no 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 you're fine like I'm just uh and and then you know it um that nervousness comes out in my body language because people took a ton of pictures and I'm up there trying to introduce the show and you know I'm all like hunched over <laughs> like, here's your dance teacher who can't stand up straight because she's nervous <laughs> I wonder if your guitar puts you at ease because I'm thinking about the show we did, the performance at the Lake Oswego Farmer's Market last summer, and it, it was a more relaxed environment, but you nailed it. You were, you were playing guitar, but you were also emceeing the thing, and you were funny and relaxed and just kind of... Um, you know, interacting with the audience and the dancers in a way that was really playful and natural. And I came away from that thinking, she is really good at that. Oh, thank you. Maybe the environment was less intimidating or I don't know what, it, but uh, you know, I have had, I do really think, think about that. And um, if it's a really challenging show, I'll tell, you know, my people I'm performing with, I cannot play guitar and MC because I'll be sitting there playing guitar and I'll be thinking what do I have to say after this number mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, right oh, oh sorry I messed up your falsetta I was worried about like how I was going to introduce the next number you know so um, uh, it depends on maybe the environment and how comfortable I am with the material and I maybe that wasn't a high risk show at that time we were really well prepared or something yeah and it was a casual atmosphere and the antonia jimenez show you mentioned earlier you had said she was kind of your idol right she's yeah. like this world-renowned person so i'm sure that you know that is different when you're in front of someone who you admire so much and... yeah she was just in the green room warming up she didn't hear any of that so whatever oh, okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was the weight of conveying her, you know, accomplishments yeah. or, yeah, her yeah. gravitas. Yeah, so how do you coach other people? Because you are, one thing, we kind of jumped right into this. I'll just say to the audience that we we had a conversation that we decided was a dress rehearsal last week for this interview slash we're trying to think of it as a casual conversation um because there are a f some i guess kind of stage fright ish issues in in play here and we are so we're both sort of working metacognitively to um dissipate those things but also it's very relevant because performance is what you do and what you teach so we just kind of jumped right into this whole thing. I did that on purpose just so that there wouldn't be like this big dramatic moment where, okay, I'm pressing start um, <laughs> because I'm in the unusual situation of trying to put my teacher at ease and just, you know, have a conversation between friends um, because that's the kind that I like to listen to when I'm listening to interviews and podcasts. 
But performance is a really interesting thing to talk about because so many people have performance anxiety. I, I heard some study once that public speaking in the United States is like people's number one fear, overwhelmingly. It's the thing that just makes people crazy. And I used to be super shy, like painfully shy. I, I just didn't want people to see me. It, it, I'm kind of going into that in a book I'm working on, and it's, I don't know all the, <laughs> the psychological implications of it, but um, I didn't want my family singing happy birthday to me. Like, it wasn't even how well I knew them. I didn't want to do, I started a um, oral report in ninth grade, ninth grade, like I was at a junior high, it wasn't in a high school, but I was high, you know, ninth grade is high school. And I started my oral report in front of the English class or whatever by saying, you don't need to listen to me, which I was really hoping they wouldn't. But of course, it had the opposite effect of now every eye and ear in the whole classroom was just riveted. And I was like, oh, so I, you know, I come into this with not being a natural ham and performer, but being someone who is very shy, like, yeah, as a kid. And now, like I said at the beginning, I now I have things to say and I'm a lot less shy about putting myself out there, but it's been a long, long road for me personally. And something I find really fascinating and it has to do with feminism and, you know, women and any, just the voice and how, whose voices are held up as right and good and whose are shushed to the side. So all that, is to say, I think this this um, topic of performance is super relevant for so many different ways. So my original question to you back a few minutes ago before my soliloquy was, how do you train beginners for performance? Because one thing I like about you, just to say one more thing before I let you talk, <laughs> is that I, I love your classes for many reasons, but one is your attitude of getting people performing quickly, not waiting until everything's perfect and you're an expert, just getting beginners up on stage performing. So talk about how you prepare other people for that. Hmm, good question, Pam. Um, <laughs> I think uh, in performance and sharing dance and music, one thing that I find very important is just a really um, deep understanding of what it is you're going to share. Um, because when you do get the stage fright, which honestly, hopefully everyone does, if you're not scared at all, it means it's not important or you don't care enough about it kind of a thing. Um, but you get these big blank moments, um, you know, you'll be up there on stage and suddenly you forget the entire choreography or you blank out for a moment. Um, it's just interesting things that the brain does. Um, so I think a deep understanding of the material is really important. And for dance, that means um, you've studied the steps individually, you've studied them in sequence, you've started partway through, you understand the meaning of what you're doing. So you understand, oh, I lo I'm lost, but I can pick up again in the Yamada. You understand how it relates to the music. And another thing that we do in f with our performance is we perform to live music. So your music on that day is gonna be different. So you really have to understand it on this very deep level. Um, and I think if I can prepare people um, so that they can face any which direction and they can start at any part and they can go 
slow and they can go fast and they know the concept of what the step is. Oh, this is a footwork step. Oh, this is a, a step that's going to call in the singer. This is a moment where I'm just waiting. If they understand it on all these different levels. Then they have better chance of um, being somewhat happy with uh, the results um, at the end. You know, usually we're very hard on ourselves, but um, I think that our performances have been incredible up till now. So I think it's been working. Yeah, and not just, I mean, I agree. And I want to unpack the and what makes them incredible from what I can tell, because I'm, I'm new. I don't know if I, I'll, I'll add a little introduction at the beginning of all this, but Brenna McDonald is my flamenco teacher. I've been taking this dance form for coming up on two years, studied, started to study a little bit of the singing part. And it, it's this whole world of flamenco that I'm just you know, finding my way into, and it's fascinating. And I've been in three or four, or four performances now, five. And what I notice afterwards is that people are not, and they, I'm talking about like the big December shows, people are not just like, wow, that was really good. They're like, what is this? And how can I, like, can I sign up? How, you know, they're just like, it's a whole different thing, and I think it has to do with the live communication. It is live music. There are musicians, there are singers, and there are dance, dancers, and they're all doing it at the same time, like nothing is pre-recorded. I don't know, but on, and the footwork is exciting, and it's the female power. Like, we could go into so many directions, but if you're in a city that has flamenco shows look them up and go see one and you'll see what we're talking about can you talk a little bit about like the language people talk about it as more than a dance form but kind of a language and how the different pieces interact yeah i think that um this is one a very exciting thing about flamenco each of the musicians and participants in a performance um especially if it's a improv Improv, improv style performance like a tableau. They're, Can you explain what a tableau is? Because most people won't know that. Yeah, so uh, flamenco can be performed in all different scenarios, but um, the tableau is a space where um, maybe the musicians and the dancer arrive that night and they say, I'm going to dance this style, and they go on stage with no rehearsal prior to the performance. Um, so it's more of an improv improvisational situation and uh it's very exciting you know it's very risky but how it works is that each participant has a understanding of the length of language so we have an understanding of how the base structure of the piece is going to go and then the the dancer will cue the musicians in for changes or vice versa we'll be communicating with each other on stage um and that language is important even if we have rehearsals and even if we do have an, a pretty set number because, you know, if it's a four, 10 to 15 minute dance piece, so many things can go wrong. Um, say a singer entirely forgets an entire verse or say the guitarist doesn't make it into their solo. Um, it's not, it's different than performing music with a orchestra where every beat is, every note's going to be just so or performing with taped music. Um, so you really need to be clued in, you know, say the guitarist is really nervous and they start the number 
way faster than you've ever heard it before. Um, all these things. So we have all these ways to communicate with each other when we're uh, performing live. And uh, it just makes it, I think, really exhilarating for the performers, um, sometimes in really exciting ways and sometimes <laughs> it's not great, you know, but it's, uh, it's, that's the nature of it. And I think that um, the people attending the performance also kind of pick up on that um, heightened energy and it, and it makes the performance really interesting for, for everyone involved. This is so perfect that you brought up improvisation because um, I, just in the past week or so, you know, I've been working forever on this good girls guide and the doodling guide and all this stuff that I think you've seen a little bit in my blog post. And I was watching a talk the other day. It was like a, a woman who was giving a talk and performance. It was about tap dancing and about her experience learning to improvise. And she was working with somebody, an experienced dancer who was um, willing to work with her and get to teach her how to do this. And so she, and she was totally lost. Like, I don't even know what to do. And he said, well, just take, do one step. So she does one step. Okay, just do one more step. And as she talked about putting steps together, this light bulb went off in my head because I've been circling around this, why I'm so obsessed with doodling but what I've realized just in the past week or two is um, as a good girl, as a recovering good girl, striver, rule follower, I can do any assignment and copy things. Like I'm good at copying you in class, I, I think. I'm pretty good at picking up your moves and it doesn't take me all that long. And you know, I'm, I've been really good at copying and following instructions my whole life. And the, the place where I've struggled or feels like it takes me a long time is to get to the improvisation part. And so even though I had developed some fluency around drawing and I can look at things and draw, doodling is improvisation. That's what I realized recently. And that's why I'm so hooked on it because that's the thing that some people, and I gain, I glean from your background that you might not be one of these people, but I definitely was. And I know that a lot of my audience is, are is um, people who are good rule, rule followers you know we're all trained in our society to do it the right way and be good and and we're given these exact you know like follow these steps to get into a good college and get a good job and a, find a good husband and blah 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 you know all the we know all the rules but where we really get stuck is improvisation so I just like earlier today I was just writing all this stuff is coming out for me around improvisation and so I know that we've been practicing imp <laughs> improvisation but that's the and I'm kind of taking over I don't mean to take over for you but this is so juicy for me right now because um, and I was looking up dictionary definitions of improvisation today and some of them are like um, mostly I have children's dictionaries in my studios because they have in my studio here because they have like pictures and they're vintage and quirky and some of them say like you know making something up without any preparation and that is one form of improv but there's another form where you prepare your whole life to be in a situation where you can handle improvisation and that's that's what goes on in the tableau Right? Yeah, when, and and the baby steps we're taking in our classes are, um, you know, we're not just asking 
people to just walk out into the center of a circle and suddenly know what they're doing. You maybe are going to improv a hand movement. You haven't, you know, moving the hand a different direction than you did the previous time or something. So um, it's, you know, really baby steps towards improvisation that um, have a lot of background with, you know, a lot of uh, practice and understanding of the music. Um, so yeah, there are kind of two different kinds of processes there that you can see in, in our flamenco studies. Um, when you're improving you're, uh, in the tableau, maybe you're putting together a sequence of steps related to how the music is changing, but you've all, you've done all the steps before. Um, they're practice movements that you're kind of sequencing. It's, it's kind of like, it is, and that's where the language element comes in. You're not just going to improv speaking. You practice speaking a lot and, um, you know, the way the words, the order of the words come out may be different, but you more or less know how to do it. Right. <laughs> Unless you're nervous on an interview. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like, uh, <laughs> are you still nervous? <laughs> it's, it's still up there. Still you know, feels kind of funny. Bit. Yeah. You're doing great. <laughs> Well, I think about that because the name of this podcast is The Accidental Muralist, and that describes me and my progression from closeted artist. Like, I never sought out being, a, I didn't even know, you know, I was not aware of the world of murals. I never paid any attention to them until I started being asked to create them. Um, and I've told that story's story in other places. I won't tell it here. I think I said a lot about it in episode one. Um, but what I feel like I'm, my strength is now, I did a project this year in um, San Luis Obispo, California, a couple months ago. And the, the skill that I bring to it is the improvisation piece. I'm, I'm kind of like you at a show where you're the glue, this is how I see you, you're the glue that's holding the entire thing together because you're in charge of the timing, right, of how, not only how fast the music for each piece goes, but how, what the spacing is between pieces. And, you know, you're like the conductor, right? And that's what I am when I'm working with, you know, there were, something like 500 people involved in that project in over the course of a week, every class in the school and parents and teachers, and I'm the conductor who knows how each of the pieces fit together. And so I can take it and, and do it. But that's only because I've done like 70 projects like that before. And so I'm, yeah, I'm fascinated with this improvisation thing because, um, because I think that's the skill people need in life. I'm just gonna go straight there. Especially if you're super trained like I was to do all the right things and act in the right way that is good and kind and I won't say proper because that wasn't really what I was going for, but just like good, just being good, like doing, being nice to people and doing things that are useful and productive. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And there's, there's a lot of good there, but there's a lot of stuckness there when it gets you to a place that you didn't intend, where suddenly your life feels like it's somebody else's life and you're just sort of 
a spectator and have this feeling like, I don't think this is where, what it was supposed to be like, or in my case it was, I knew marriage was hard, but really like this, is this what it's like for everybody? And, and so, but when we're so trained to follow the rules, um, there's a lot of stuckness, but when you, when you see your life as one big improvisation and you learn to trust yourself, that's where I'm finding that things get really, I want to say juicy, but I already used that word, lit up, maybe exciting, but not always exciting. Like sometimes it's really, you know, hard, but how, so I'm kind of, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but if you have thoughts over the course of our conversation about how what you learn in flamenco translates to your life or how you live your life, I'm always interested in hearing those things. <laughs> and that's kind of a hard thing. Like how, you know, give us some life wisdom, <laughs> Brenna. I don't want to, I don't want to do that to you, but um, jump in. if One of might. the, one of the early lessons I learned when I was, um, working with in flamenco uh one a singer i was working with um told me you have to be self you have to be selfish you know so okay simple concept you know and uh doesn't sound too you know groundbreaking but um for most women you know, it thinking, is though <laughs> yeah yeah mm -hmm. and how do you how in an arts how do you be selfish you know okay I realized as I was deciding about what projects I was taking on, whether it be a class I was teaching or a performance or um, any project that I could do under the umbrella that eventually became Espacio Flamenco, I had to decide first if that project was going to be valuable to me personally. Uh, and that was so important because if the project didn't turn how I, out how I wanted to, or if it did, either way, positive or, or negative, um, you know, it was, I, it was my, I knew that I had initiated it for myself. So I had to be really, from, from the beginning, I had to turn off that, turn off that kind of knee jerk reaction to do something for someone else because they wanted me to. Um, that didn't really seem to be a good uh, path in art. You know, you don't want to just perform in a show because somebody else wants you to because performing in a show is so much work it's so intense and you know you've performed you know it's uh you go through a lot of emotions you know it takes up an entire day if not an entire month of your life or longer uh, and you have to do it for yourself and so that lesson um i'm still trying to apply to my life my personal life <laughs> there's an example of an answer to that question yeah no that's perfect and it's an ongoing thing i think that's important for everyone to know there was something in there that you said oh the the blame or you didn't use i don't know if you used the word blame but i think a lot about blame and resentment and regret being three really good um flags that you're not listening to yourself and i love that you brought up selfishness as a path because that's another thing that we're trained especially women to be selfless like don't even get me started on that horrible word which you know it's like the as as invisible and small and you know 
like disappearing as you could be, that's sort of the height of womanhood in some definitions. So being selfish, um, yeah, like put yourself first. And I want to piggyback on that for just to drive this point home. If anyone out there is still wondering, like selfish, that doesn't seem like a good path. I ha I've told you this story, Brenna. Um, we were at a performance last summer and I was chatting with the mom of one of your like 12 year old dancers. I was in my costume so she knew that I was a performer and she, we had a little, I think she brought it up. She just said, I, I just love Brenna. I'm so glad that my daughter has her as a teacher. I'm not saying this to butter you up, but here's the part that really stuck with me. She said, she, is one of the healthiest people I know. She, she described you as healthy. And I wanna put that right together with selfish because I think that those two things, even though in our minds we usually completely disjoint them from each other or you know distance them from each other, but when you put yourself first and you make decisions based on what works for you, it is a healthy way to move through the world and you're impacting all the people around you by showing other people how to do it. So amen to that. And when she said that, I thought that's a perfect way to describe Brenna. Okay, pardon my choppy editing skills, dear listener, but right now we're gonna jump ahead to hear how Brenna got started in flamenco and how Flam uh, Spacio Flamenco organically grew. Okay, well, um, I got into flamenco when I was about 12 or 13 years old. My sister invited me to uh, join her um, either at a performance or at a dance class. Neither of us can remember which um, happened first. Um, I was in Eugene, Oregon, and there's a family of flamenco artists um, there, and my sister had started hanging out with one of the kids in the family and I remember that I was just hooked instantly um, and I had already started playing guitar at that time but was kind of you know exploring different genres and you know hadn't really felt satisfied with the genres I had been exploring and you know when I found out about flamenco guitar it was over you know I was like that's it that's what I want to do and um, I found the dancing to be really intriguing as well and I think I really liked the interaction between the music and dance. I like the intensity and passion of the sounds of the music and um, the intricacy of the guitar work and with the dance, the full body experience. And I love the footwork um, and uh, I just, yeah, the whole world drew me in. Um, it was mysterious and it, uh, that was a long time ago. and. The internet wasn't really a resource, and it was like, what is this? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and for people listening who have heard of flamenco but can't really picture what it is, you would describe it better, but I'll describe it more from a beginner, you know, someone who's more recently encountered it. There's, you wear shoes that have like little teeny nails, so it's percussive with the feet, and your feet can do, you know, flashy, fancy, percussive things, kind of like tap dancing. Um, and then it's very flowy and flowery and usually performers have, the females have um, big full skirts and, and flowers in their hair and 
The hands are very flowery. I'm making little flowery gestures with my hands right now. Um, and it's very feminine and yet very fierce. And it just moves around into all these emotional ranges. And that's part of what what got me. And the, and the singers who say, are so soulful and just like, they're just pouring their whole heart out. So yeah, there's just something that when people see it or when you experience it, you're like, whoa, this is something different. So, okay, so you're hooked, you're now maybe a teenager, you're taking guitar, you're taking dance, and then, and then what? And then, you know, the rest of my life happened. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how um, old are you now? You don't mind telling us, do you? Uh, I'm 36. Okay, so that was, yeah, more than 20 years ago. Yeah, people are always like, how long have you been playing guitar? I'm like, you really want to know? I have to, I'm gonna have to do some math here. <laughs> um, yeah, so how did it go from just like, you're a teenager, you're really interested in this. Did you, did you think, man, I want to, you know, grow up and have my own dance studio or doing Lipo was always part of my life. I was always um, pursuing, finding out ways to dance um, and trying to learn more about guitar. Um, but also going to school and, you know, going to college and um, trying to figure out how to make money and all of that. And I definitely never thought, I want to run a dance studio. <laughs> and I think the farthest thing I ever wanted was um, to be self-employed. You know, that was like, well, that sounds terrifying. Um, so I think I was very slow to realize that that was what was happening. It was like, well, people are giving me money for this and I don't really have time to do anything else. So I guess I'm a full-time artist, you know, but it was not like a, a dream by any means. The dream was to make flamenco happen and, um, you know, make, uh, art, um, music and dance with people. Um, and that has been the thing that I've pursued and the business thing has been kind of like, ah, <laughs> Anyone help me figure out how to run a business? This is confusing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I named this podcast the Accidental Muralist Podcast because that's the name of a book that I plan to write someday about my own trajectory of wanting to be an artist, but so naturally becoming a school teacher and, you know, like being an artist wasn't a real thing that you could just plan. I was shocked in my, I think I was like 35 or something before I met, I had a good friend in Oakland who wanted to be an artist when she was a kid. Her family supported that. She grew up, she did, I don't know if she went to a special art high school or anything, but she went to college, she studied art, and then she became an artist. And I remember thinking like, I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't, she was the first person I ever knew who like her sole trajectory was in the arts. And I just absorbed this idea when I grew up that it's a hobby, it's it's not a real thing, or you have to be anointed or very, I don't know. Yeah, it just wasn't a thing. But the accidental piece of it, that's been something I've thought of, like from a point of curiosity of whether the people who are making a living, making a life as an artist, how where it, i think it is accidental a lot of times in the sense of like it's not like you have this goal and then you march in your steps towards it 
for me, it's more like you take the first tiny step and then another thing opens in front of you and then you step there and then you take this other step and then pretty soon, like you said, people are paying you for this thing and you don't have time to do anything else. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's important for people to know because a lot of people who follow my work, they're interested because this path has not been clarified for people and I try to be very transparent about first there's no set number of steps you know seven steps to owning your own art business like that's not a thing and it shouldn't be because if it is be very suspicious of that because it's it's so much more organic and yeah but because you and I did it other people can do it too you just take the steps toward it so Tell us how it grew into, like more about how it grew into a business. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, someday the project project will be to create a little timeline um, because this question comes up <laughs> at shows and if I'm the MC, it's like, well, somewhere between five and 10 years ago, you know, so I, I'm, uh, I think where we really started was with Flamenco Callejero, which translates to street flamenco. Um, we were, um, uh, at the time, the main flamenco studio in Portland had closed and it left a lot of people, you know, without an avenue um, or without a space for classes or performance. And um, so, so you were part of that community? You taking I was, was loosely part of that community. Um, I had just returned from Spain and so was also kind of trying to figure out what I was doing. But we decided to get together and um, have a huerga, like a party and just practice and um, jam uh, regularly, like once a week. Then um, we decided we should share it and we would give it a name. And so we were going to um, last Thursdays on Alberta Street, which is like a street fair. And we were going to different outdoor events and we wanted to kind of bring flamenco to um, unusual spaces and just share it um, in casual settings. Um, and that was really successful. We met a lot of people that way and um, we kind of um, became more confident as performers um, by just performing more in um, strange places. And um, we kind of got a idea of who wanted to be involved and at what level and what kind of art we wanted to create. Um, so it kind of gave us a better idea of, okay, I'm interested in doing this kind of flamenco or um, this is how I want to organize performances or that sort of thing. Um, so besides but, street festivals and um, Alberta Street is half a block from me. So I think that's kind of cool that part of this started, you know, right outside my door practically. Um, besides street fairs, and there are quite a few around town, but what, uh, when you say interesting places, like what other kinds of places were you performing at? You know, there was like, there's a Sunday parkways where everybody mm. rides their bikes around. So we would just kind of plop down in a random part of Sunday parkways. And, um, you know, how cool is that, that you're riding your bike around the corner and then there's like this flamenco jam going on. <laughs> I mean... I'm partial to flamenco, so I think it's pretty cool. It is cool. Um, <laughs> anyone, anyone would think that. <laughs> and I have to, you know, I should go back and find more examples of places, you know, um, farmers markets and kind mm -hmm. of uh, casual busking type of 
environments. Yeah, and I, I want to highlight that too, because again, I'm always trying to dispel this notion of, you know, well, you just were born doing this or running a company or, you know, people often see the finished product or more and more people get involved when it becomes an organized, structured thing, but the but they may not connect all the little steps that led up to it. So, and you know, on my end, the, the version would be like doing a craft, participating in a craft fair for the first time, which for me was a huge deal. You know, I'm putting my things out in the world and wondering if anyone wants to buy what I made. And you know, like it just start, all of this starts with just small steps, getting friends together. And instead of doing, performing in someone's house, you're gonna do it out where other people can see you and then and then people come up and they're like, hey, I used to dance. I'm assuming this is how it happened. People saw you at the street fairs. They came up like, hey, I, I used to dance flamenco or I'm interested in this, how, where, how, who, and then it grows. So I just, I wanna make that visual really clear for people because it's not, it's not like you make this giant leap into now I am a full-time artist. I Yesterday I was a teacher, tomorrow I'm a full-time artist. It's a journey of a thousand steps and it probably won't look like what you anticipated when you get farther along. That's the accidental part. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, now that we are in the great pause of coronavirus, I should, this would be a great time for me to sit down and think, what were all those steps? Yeah. <laughs> right. Know? Write your little history. Uh, you're right? Yeah. You're asking me and I'm like, how did this start? <laughs> Ooh, what, when was that? What else did I do? I was, you know, I think that, um, there's many parts of the story and I'm kind of, maybe I'm forgetting some things. Well, I've for... been a lifelong journal. Well, since about eighth grade, actually today, little side note, I was looking for something specific in my old journals, but I didn't find that, but I found all these other, like my eighth grade English journal and my, and then when I was 2001, however old I was when I had a two-year-old and a seven-year-old and what my life looked like then. And anyway, I've been kind of on this memory lane thing, but I've documented a lot because I'm naturally writing all the time. Um, so it helps to put those timelines together. <laughs> But yet, are there people from from the early days who are still involved in Espacio Flamenco? Yes, absolutely. Um, Espacio is a business run by myself and my colleague Lily last. Um, and from the beginning, Lily was a huge presence uh, organizer for the events. And uh, also when we were starting to think about running a studio and teaching classes. Um, we had both been teaching elsewhere and then found the, the studio under the Hawthorne Bridge and, you know, kind of started to organize together to run that studio. And um, we both always, I think, shared a vision of wanting to put the art form and community first um, and wanting to make this uh, collaborative, collective effort and recognizing that flamenco is about um, community and about many people, um, you know, so we were trying to make sure that it was welcoming to everyone who might become interested in becoming a part of it and that it was, um, if we were setting up an organization, that it was geared towards it being accessible to 
people of all ages and beginners and you know we're, that has been something that I think we shared um, and has been part of the success of what we've been doing with Espacio. Yeah, definitely. As a you know fairly recent member of the community, it it is a very welcoming place. And when I say that, what I mean is, you know, there will be parties now and then or some event and and everybody gets invited and not just invited like perfunctory, oh, let's, you know, put everybody on the list, but really we want to just hang out with the people we've known for many years. It's, it's extended in a very genuine way to new people like me. And then at the event, I've been impressed with how, how people who I'm going to say old timers only just cause you know, like I know they're the experienced dancers who've been around a while will come up and ask, you know, oh, I haven't met you before, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't feel clicky. And I think that takes intention. I don't think that people naturally want to be clicky, but it's natural when you're in a group in a, you know, with a bunch of people that you're going to gravitate toward the people that you already know. But it feels like in this community, there is a concerted effort to reach outside the people you already know and draw in the people who you haven't met and make them feel welcome. And I really appreciate that from my perspective, my vantage point as a newer person. And, but you know, it just makes it exciting and fun. I think it makes for, it makes for better art because, um, <clears throat> You know, everyone has something to bring to the table, and um, uh, we really want to make sure that we have a space where people can come to that table and, and um, share their art. And so it's been a, um, you know, Lily and I have taken leadership workshops at, um, with RAC, and, you know, we've really thought about how we're, how we can be as leaders and, you know, consult with people um, through different you know, situations that we're navigating. And um, that is very important to us that we're, you know, creating a space that feels opening, open and welcoming and, um, you know, for the art's sake, you know, you know, it's cool to be nice and that's great, but it really makes for better art, I think. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I just want to say rack that Brenna just mentioned is the regional arts and culture council, something like that. It's like a regional body that gives grants and things to artists and does trainings. Um, and that, that brings me to two, two things that I want to hold on to that we can talk about. One is, yes, I agree that openness enhances art, um, which is why I've written and mentioned I think in other podcast episodes how absurd to me the whole idea of competition art competition is we don't need to go into it but um, <clears throat> our whole we do live in a society that kind of worships competition it's like how we organize ourselves we rank things we rank movies which movie made the most money you know, it has nothing to do with what was the best art or, and I don't even want to use the word best art because that's not a thing. Um, but you know, we're, we're so competition focused and I think art can feel very competitive. I know that I, as a visual artist, am, it's hard to not compare yourself to other 
you know, if I go to other art shows or peek in the window of art galleries, it's it's easy to see other people's paintings like that's so amazing, you know, mine are so juvenile looking or whatever. And I really try to get out of that mentality because that is not to me at all what art is for or about. And I think the spirit that you cultivate at Espacio Flamenco is is what feels very healthy for cultivating art, that it's open and it's for everybody and it's not about who's best and about competition. I didn't leave you much room to comment, but you can comment on that. <laughs> or we could go right into the next thing, which is about body shapes. And I, I wrote a piece last fall. I was trying to parse for myself, what is it about this dance form and art form? What is it that is so different than anything I've been a part of? And I started that piece by noting a conversation you and I had when I thought that I was gonna need to quit or at least leave for a while because I had a schedule conflict. I was finished with my first little session. I was feeling like the right thing, quote unquote, to do would be to do this thing that was more like professional. It was this writing group. And anyway, you know, because dance sometimes in my mind, even though I, I am learning that I just need to prioritize it over everything. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, that other part of your brain, it's like, oh, I should do this thing that might have professional benefits to me. But you said something as I was thanking you and saying, you know, I hope to be back, but I have this thing, I don't think I could do the next session. You said something that made me change my mind. And what you said, and I'm paraphrasing, was we were talking about, I was admiring your, your floreas, you have long limbs and long fingers. I have short stubby fingers and short muscular limbs. And I was admiring your flowiness. You said something about how you feel like you stand out in a crowd because you're tall, especially in Spain, where you know the average population is a little shorter. And you said something about um, when you see new people come in to classes, you're kind of looking like, oh, I wonder what that body shape can bring to this style. That was the thing that made me think like, oh, this is something I need to stick with. I need to, you know, this is something interesting and compelling and I need more. So I ditched that other thing. I'm really glad and I stayed. <laughs> so tell me about bodies. Um, I appreciate as a 50, I think I'm 54 year old, that there's a wide age range from little kids who are not in our same classes, but you know, who are performing up to teenagers who might be in our classes up to, you know, 60 something. I don't know how old the oldest people in the classes are, but tell me something about flamenco and bodies. Is that, is that a fair question? <laughs> That's a great question. I hope I'm uh, qualified to answer. Um, I think for me, flamenco is dance is so exciting um, because it's asking of the artists to represent, you know, what they can with their body as in its uniqueness. Um, so it's not asking for you to be as flexible as your neighbor, or as tall or as short or um, you know, it's not asking you to be thin or fat or, um, 
it's asking you to be you and to present that. Um, and that is exciting and it's terrifying. And it's also it, revolutionary it, in the United States right now. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes a lot of time to say, okay, I'm not built like that person I admire. And, um, but this is how I'm built and this is what I have to offer. Um, so it is a different, um, sort of art form and that you're fault you're following um you can follow a similar technique but you need to find a technique that ultimately is uh right for you um and for each person and it's um it's as small as how are you going to move your hands how are you going to move your elbows and your shoulders and um your hips but it's as big as um you know, how do you present on the gender spectrum? And, um, you know, how are you going to present this dance in terms of masculine and feminine? Um, so it really leaves you room to figure out who you are and how you want to present. Um, and it is so exciting. It's just great as a teacher because, you know, for me, there's a lot of things that my body won't do, but I'm like, ha, but she can do that or he can do that. And I get to see, um, I get to take part in that joy and that beauty and I love to watch um students really look great doing moves that um you know I find that might be slightly awkward for me but I'm like but you can do it <laughs> <laughs> because I grew up doing gymnastics and taking ballet and the only thing I remember my ballet teacher ever saying although I just document I read in my journal that I thought she was really nice and pretty I remember her telling me once, because I probably was sucking in my stomach and I was very flat chested because I was a late bloomer. I remember her saying, you know, your rib cage is not actually supposed to stick out farther than your breasts. <laughs> she didn't say it in a mean way, but <laughs> yeah, that was the only thing, the only words I remember from her. And then I had a dance, I took some dance classes, jazz and ballet and in high school and that teacher, I remember her taking time in class one day to tell us, to describe to us what a perfect pair of legs looked like for girls. Like if you're standing with your legs together, there should be gaps of, of daylight here and here and here. And that's the only words I remember her saying. She probably said a lot of other words in the you know two or three years that I took classes there. But the, you know, these things are deeply ingrained in women and men have their own versions of what they're supposed to be like too. I just can't speak for that. I can only speak for myself. And so I still find myself very judgmental and I'm really working on this, not only with myself, but I still have a standard. We all know the standard of what a woman is supposed to look like, like what her body is supposed to look like, because we've seen it on every magazine cover for, you know, 50 years. And so I'm still using sort of that standard and, and judging like, oh, if, if she were just a little thinner, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but, you know, I'm about transparency and honesty. <laughs> That's how you have to admit it before you can heal it. But I'm still, you know, when I have a little too much belly, I'm like, mm, I, I know for me, like, I know I'm saying in quotes, like how, what's wrong that needs to be fixed until it's right. And that whole notion of wrong and right and what women are supposed to look like, it's, 
it's horrible and it's destructive and it's it's awful and it's so deeply ingrained and so to be in a space where the prevailing attitude is not what does that woman need to do to herself to transform into the right kind of body but what how can that body express itself and sort of to its own advantage is mind-blowing. I said a lot right there, but <laughs> but it's, you know, it's big. And I, I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one who grew up with these very narrow definitions of what we're all supposed to look like. You know, especially for white women, I can't speak for for people of other ethnicities and growing up in other countries, but if you're an, a white woman in America, you know exactly what you're supposed to look like, what your body is supposed to be shaped like. And we are just given the bodies that we're given and, you know. I think there's a lot of truth in what you have been saying, Pam. And I think in Flamenco, um, for me as like a somebody who watches Flamenco or goes to shows, um, if somebody walks on stage with that kind of mod, you know, ballet dancer look, I go, ooh, you know, I, I judge them harshly and it's usually a lot harder for them <laughs> to move me as a performer than somebody who walks on stage um, having, you know, slightly less of the perfect ballet performer look. Um, so mm -hmm. there is something interesting there. I think Flamenco really appreciates um, uniqueness you know and, and a lot of times things that you think are you know your weakness um you know or, or if only i could have this be perfect it's like no that's what makes you different and that's interesting and you you end up realizing you need to like use that to your advantage um it, it but it's a whew, it's a hard work to do um but it, it's pretty exciting yeah, it's just such a different way of thinking that even though I'm aware of this and I've been working for decades to try to, you know, get out of these modes of thinking, it's still, I still get tripped up and it's still just, it's like, wow, yeah, it's, I'm trying to implant into my head um, instead of judging like, oh, if only that person were more this, I'm trying to replace that with so that's another way a woman can look. So that's another way a woman can look. And that's one thing that I love about flamenco, and I wrote about this as well, is that there's such a range of not only body types and ages, I love it when the grandmothers get up, you know, in YouTube videos, and here comes Abuela, and she's, you know, she's stout and gray-haired, but she's bringing it. And <laughs> she's... Oh, I love that. Anyway, um, I got so distracted with my image of some of these videos I've seen of the abuelas that I forgot what I was saying. I'm very grateful, you know, that I'm that I'm into flamenco. That the the most revered performers are usually the grandparents, and it's not like oh, you're you're over twenty. Like, sorry, right. too old for this art form. Like, that would be a real big bummer for the rest of your life. So I'm, I think it's pretty lucky, at least for me, that I um, found an art form that um, is a lifelong pursuit and that, you know, that youth isn't like the only valuable thing, you know, like kind of seems 
like all stages of life are valuable within the art form. Right. Yeah. And speaking as a former gymnast, 20 is way over the hill. Like 14 is, you know, kind of the sweet spot, maybe 16. And these days, I think it's getting a little bit better. I think the sport is becoming more accepting of, you know, a little more heft and, and healthier bodies. And I've seen some fantastic college gymnasts, but even then I'm like, wow, they're in college and they're still too, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. But anyway, um, the emotion, I, the one thing I wrote about, and this is something that as a recovering good girl, um, who knows exactly how to be nice and friendly and polite. Um, the range of emotion, and, and I know that that's exactly what I'm supposed to be. You know, not only do we have in the United States among white women, and again, I'm just going to stay with like my demographic, what I understand, is not only do you know exactly how you are supposed to look, but you know exactly how you're supposed to act supposed to, if you're a mom, you're supposed to, you know, sacrifice everything for your kids, put everybody else first, and just be kind of like as invisible and in the background as possible, put everybody else, you know, in the spotlight. Um, I'm only exaggerating a tiny bit when I say all that. I think it's actually pretty, pretty true. Um, but here's an art form where these performers they're in turn, you know, they look like you've just pissed them off and, and they're flipping you off and then they turn around and then they're all sweetness and then they're like intense and look like they're about to cry and then not in every style because that's another thing. We, there's a lot of different styles or branches of flamenco but and some are lighthearted I guess and others are more dramatic and some are kind of saucy and but there's, there's just the full array of human emotion that is embedded in this art form and you're not supposed to erase that. You're supposed to embody that. Is that, is that fair, the way I just described that? Yeah, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> this is my quiz. This is my two, okay, you've been in flamenco for two years. Here's your quiz. What have you learned? But I just find that fascinating because it's it's so accepting and that I want it, I want it to be a more active word, not accepting, but like you're supposed to be all of those things. And as human beings, what I what I try to convey in my writing and art and my mission of my business is we're supposed to be a lot of things. We're not supposed to be happy all the time. I'm so sick of happy being the standard like we're supposed to have a rich interesting life it is supposed to sometimes make you really angry and it's supposed to make you elated and you know you're supposed to have all these different ways of being and people are supposed to have different ways of looking and there's room for that and that's one thing that I really love and I I, ha I find it to be a struggle because I'm not used to showing all of that, especially like the anger, or the fierceness on the outside. I'm used to just keeping, that's why I journal so much because anytime I'm angry, I have to like put it in writing. I'm, I, I didn't learn how to put it out. I just like, my, my old journals are just full of like everything I was mad about. 
it's pretty interesting to read them for me. But yeah, so do you have anything to add about that? I know I keep like, you know, going off on the, but it's, it makes me excited to talk about this stuff too. I, I just find it so fascinating to be learning all this. Yeah, I think that movement is a really powerful form of therapy or it's like helpful for us as humans to move and um, process our emotions and flamenco with the beautiful music and rich cultural history. The framework that, you know, there's a lot of emotion in that music makes it a really good, great um, tool for, you know, processing emotion, I think. Um, and it's a, some sort of group catharsis that happens. Um, you know, if you go to a really good flamenco show, it's like, I'm just like, oh, that was nice. Or that was a fun way. It's like, whoa, my life has changed, you know? Um, <laughs> So it's, uh, you know, you're, look, you're looking for that kind of intense experience um, that, you know, you, whether you're not, you're the one moving or you're watching other people process the emotions, I think it can really be a very powerful art form um, for everyone participating on all levels. Yeah, I think, like I was saying earlier, the, the people who I have brought to shows, my sister and brother-in-law, my partners, friend, family, friends, my daughters, they're, they're not just like, wow, that was really good. They're like, oh my God, you know? And I think it's because it is so emotional and the, the goal is not to be pretty or, you know, to do, I mean, it is beautiful. Flamenco goes in a lot of different directions. It is a fuller emotional experience, I think when you're doing it and when you're watching it. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so different is that you will be watching or participating in a performance that is taking you through a whole, like the whole range of the human experience. And then on the end, you're like, wow, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. It's very exciting. It is, it's, it's very compelling. Um, so the, you, the business name is Espacio Flamenco. Espacio means space. And we have kind of accidentally, I think a few times talked about creating space for all these different emotions and all these different body types. But can, how did you come up with that name, Espacio Flamenco? So we were kind of struggling to admit that we were really starting a business, you know? And it was, um, so the whole, you know, start of it was like, ah, is this how we want to organize? And are we sure we want to do this? And, and we kind of went through many different names, um, and put off naming anything for years actually. Um, and then, uh, our friend Tanya suggested the name and, um, we thought it was a great name that, um, you know, kind of captured what we were trying to do, which is, create space for um, flamenco to be explored and um, learned and shared. And so we, we stuck with it. Yeah, so the so what I understand of Espacio Flamenco, there's, you offer classes, you teach all the beginning classes, Lily teaches some classes, there's other people who teach, and then there's a company that is, those are the professional performers, right? So. I didn't really make that into a question. Is that 
Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. We also set up um, events, workshops, special events, and um, we also host, you know, performances too. And that kind of grew out of a project we started called La Peña Flamenca, which we were trying to just um, create kind of a club of everyone who liked flamenco and let's all support, make more shows happen. Because it felt like maybe 10 years ago in Portland, there were not very many flamenco performances happening. So we were kind of like, let's do whatever we can to bring people to town and kind of create a framework for making performance easier. There could be more performances and people could be, have more opportunity to be exposed to um, flamenco. So that was another one of the names. And then it all was like, okay, this is mainly Lily and Brenna working on this project. And so it'll, it can all just fit all these kind of different things can fit under Espacio Flamenco. Yeah. And we, we were talking last time about how you wear so many different hats, especially in a performance because you're the main guitarist and you also sing. And sometimes when we're lucky, you dance, although sometimes you're too busy being the guitarist. And you're, you've choreographed a lot of what other people are doing on stage. And you're kind of setting the timing of not only each song or each number, but um, the spacing between them. And you've probably secure between you and Lily, you've secured the venue, you've done the ticket, you know, there's just like, you have every hat, you're wearing every hat. <laughs> yeah, it can be very distracting. Sometimes I'm jealous of my friends who are guitarists, and they just show up and play. <laughs> and but that it's also rewarding, you know, because it's, um, you know, very much, I'm very involved and invested in the project. But there'll be times on stage where, you know, I know that somebody else on stage needs to be doing something like standing up or leaving or sitting down or and it you know meanwhile I'm playing something complicated on guitar and I'm thinking about how they need to be moving or you know so and so needs to be singing this or oh no the person at the front door needs to be letting that person in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it can be really distracting and there's funny moments where like I'll try to communicate something like mid song, you know, but I'm also playing and, uh, <laughs> it doesn't ever work. And so, you know, it's, I'm all, like, I could sometimes I watch that video, you know, we take video, we video our shows and I'll watch it. And I'm like, Oh, there I am. Like, you know, trying to cue someone mind your own business. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is all your business. That's the thing. Like you is, is literally your business, but it also like, yeah, you're the, like the the conductor, but who is also performing, who also did all the arranging and also, yeah, it, it's a lot. And kind of related to that, how, talk about the challenge between running a business that is an arts business and, and your own practice, your own art pr practice, balancing those things. Yeah, I've struggled a lot. I work well with um, deadlines. So, oh, I better get this choreography for my class finished because I'm teaching in one hour. That works great for me. But, um, oh, I want to choreograph something for myself to perform at some time in the future. 
that's going to be a really hard project for me to work on. You know, it's easier and also feels more important, you know, that I secure the venue for next December's holiday show or deal with something with the business or deal with something with students or classes. And, and usually I'm struggling to try to um, allocate more time to my own practice time and to um, real free time, like maybe going for a walk or doing something unrelated. Um, and my tendency is to wake up and start doing flamenco business stuff and go to sleep and be doing it right up until the moment I go to sleep. So um, there's a lot of room for improvement there. It's hard. Um, you can always be, yeah, it's hard to turn it off because there's always more you can do. It's a challenge. And I, yeah, I'm still working on that. And I'm about 10 years, uh, kind of depends. Like you, my business grew very organically, so it's hard to say when it started. I think I first registered my business in July of 2008, so that makes it almost 12 years old, but I was kind of doing stuff be, you know, for the year before that, and then it didn't really look like it looks now. And yeah, it's all kind of changing all the time, but um, so I understand the timeline problems. <laughs> it's not, nothing is so clear cut and orderly. It all just is organic, which, which I, I want that idea to free people going back again to, to you listeners out there who are, have aspirations of, I'll just say having more art in your life take tiny steps and just be open to what comes and because it's always an adjustment and I think I can I gotta speak again for Brenna and me in our businesses that we're five or ten or however many years into it's always changing and I hope that it never gets to a point where you have to stop working it because you know how boring and lifeless would that be if everything's just set in motion and you just sit back and you know are on autopilot like that's not anything to aspire to so you just yeah you never really get there but you're always getting somewhere if you keep moving forward is that how is that how you experience running your business yeah lily and i would always think like okay well after we've gone through a certain amount of you know say for example setting the class schedule you know we do a schedule her season and kind of thought that once we had um, done it a handful of times, it would just kind of go on autopilot. It's like, no, there's always something to figure out. You know, we thought, oh, once we've done this or that enough times that it, this will be way easier. It'll just kind of run itself, you know, and it's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, there's always something to figure out. And um, like, really, we thought, we thought this was just going to be running itself by now, but it's not, you know, so there's always challenges and um, lots of things to figure out. And there is always the joke that's like, okay, it's a learning process. You know, it's like, well, okay, I'm, I'm done learning, you know, <laughs> can we stop learning at some point? Like, no, you can't stop learning that. <laughs> I know. It's actually a really bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's, yeah. And that's a great message. Like, I, I think that there is an old model in our culture, and I think it's kind of 
dying out for um, unintentional reasons, but you know, where like you, you grow up, you go to school, you go to college, you get a quote unquote good job, you work in that job and then you retire and you're done and you sit back and relax and reflect on all the great work you did. Like, A, that sounds horrible to me and B, I don't know anybody whose life is like that and it doesn't, I don't know, you, yeah, you're never done and you're always learning and that's what makes it interesting. So. I think this is a good place to wrap up. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you or talk to you, tell you about yourself that you, <laughs> that you would like to share? Um, and including where people can find out more about your work. Okay, well, you can find us, um, Espacio Flamenco. We have a website, espacioflamencopdx.com, and we have a Facebook page and an Instagram. Um, and yeah, we encourage you to check out some flamenco music and dance. It's a really interesting world and, um, you know, fun, fun art form to explore. And, um, thanks Pam for chatting with me about it and for all the cool work you do with all hands art. Um, and let's, yeah, good good stuff, making more art happen and making art more accessible to people. Yeah, and even though our art forms are different, our business businesses are different, I think the mission is very closely aligned of just bringing more art, you know, getting more people involved, making art, art, art will save us all. Um, it's not a competition. It's all about finding your strengths what your body can do or what your ideas are that you want to put out into the world. Yeah. Good. Well, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. All right. <laughs>